Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Sweden, Brazil, the United States, and a see you in hell from Italy, and also kind of just the whole Western world, like in general. Uh, I'm going to start out with Sweden. Uh, Sweden just had an election for their parliament, and for the first time in quite a while, a right-wing coalition won in Sweden. Uh, Sweden's recent democratic history, that is from most of the 20th century, has been dominated by a center-left political coalition. However, recently, a right-wing political coalition has beaten this left political coalition. Uh, Specifically, this coalition is led by the Sweden Democrats. Uh, Now, don't let the name fool you. The Sweden Democrats are actually a pretty far right-wing party, especially by Scandinavian standards. They are uh, anti-immigrant, they are pro-cop, they are skeptical about a lot of the democratic rights and norms and social liberalism that Sweden and most of the other Nordic countries are pretty known for, especially in the United States, where you know people hold them up as examples about like how you could run a country in a social democratic way, right? Uh, the Sweden Democrats are led by a 43-year-old, uh, which is pretty you know common for a lot of these types of newer right-wing political parties. Uh, This guy's name is Jimmy Ackeson, and the party itself is also extremely young. Uh, It has its origins in the 1980s. Uh, It was actually founded by a group of extremists and even some neo-Nazis. However, in the last couple of years, it's been trying to distance itself from that legacy, Uh, although, again, it's only been able to enter parliament. uh, It's only been in parliament since 2010. Uh, So in 11 years, it has shot up to become the second biggest party in Sweden. Uh, The center-left party in Sweden remains the biggest party. However, uh, their coalition is now smaller than the right-wing parties, uh, which are pretty likely to be the ones that are going to be forming a government here. Now, nobody knows exactly how that's going to shake out. Uh, This is somewhat uncharted territory for Sweden, uh, but it does not bode well for the left and the center-left in Europe in general. Moving on to Brazil... Uh, The Brazilian election is coming up very soon. Uh, It is going to be happening in about two weeks on October the 2nd. Uh, And the reason that I'm bringing it up right now is that current polls are showing that Lula de Silva, uh, the leftist candidate, um, you know, he's a sort of center-left populist candidate of the uh, Workers' Party, is the translation in English. Uh, It is possible that he is going to gain a majority of the votes cast, of the legitimate votes cast. Uh, He is currently polling at around 43 or 44% to the um, about like 33% that his main opponent, the current president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, is polling at. What this means is that according to Brazilian law, if a candidate gets over 50% of the legitimate votes cast in a presidential election, that candidate is automatically the victor. And there is no need to go to a second round of voting, even if that candidate didn't win an absolute majority. So this means that Lula is currently polling such that it's possible that he could just outright win in early October. The reason that I'm bringing all of this up is that Jair Bolsonaro, the current president of Brazil, has said time and time and time again that he believes that these polls are fake, that he thinks that this election is going to be rigged, and he has just really laid the rhetorical and political groundwork to oppose any kind of victory by Lula, whether it be in the first round or in the second round. 
This means that we have to be very uh, careful and vigilant about this situation, uh, whether you are in Brazil or if you are in any other country. Uh, this is a particularly dangerous time for democracy in this country, uh, specifically because um, Bolsonaro's supporters have been galvanized for potentially supporting a coup for essentially the entirety of Bolsonaro's presidency. The good news is that unlike in previous military, like unlike in previous coups in Brazil and in much of Latin America, the military itself doesn't seem to be uh, very much in favor of Bolsonaro's coalition of maintaining his presidency, despite the fact that he's probably going to lose. Uh, however, his supporters are willing to engage in political violence. And on that note, uh, there's actually been another political murder in Brazil. Uh, there have been several uh, over the course of this electoral cycle. Uh, this is one that just happened last week. Uh, a guy named Rafael Silva de Oliveira uh, killed a member of the Workers' Party, the PT, the PT, uh, who was his co-worker during a political argument uh, over the election uh, in a rural region of Mato Grosso, uh, which is a sort of center-western province of Brazil. Uh, uh, Oliveira has been put in preventative custody by the police in Brazil, uh, which means that they know that he did it and they're just awaiting trial, basically. This is uh, part of a wave of political violence that has fortunately so far been a lot smaller than it could be, uh, but that just sort of means that possibly when Bolsonaro loses, uh, approximately 20 to 30% of the population of the country uh, will be extremely upset uh, and will believe that the election has been stolen from them and their candidate might actually agree with them. You know, he, he might actually get out on the streets with them and say like, yeah, uh, this election was stolen from me uh, and I deserve to have the presidency still. Moving on to similar kinds of rhetoric and people who employ similar rhetoric in the United States, uh, the Department of Justice uh, has appealed a, a success, a recent success that Donald Trump has been granted in his, uh, in his attempt to cover up his stealing of secret documents from the White House and taking them to Mar-a-Lago. Remember last week that Trump got a, uh, a very big win in this process? Uh, he was granted something called a special master. A uh, special master in this case is a third party who goes through these documents and determines just how secretive they are uh, because Trump's legal team is arguing like, well, if it's the United States government, which is prosecuting Trump, uh, the United States government is saying like, hey, uh, these documents are secret, but also nobody can see them to determine how secret they are. Uh, so the special master is a third party who verifies how secretive these documents really are in order to determine the validity of the claims of the Department of Justice. Uh, so Trump won this, and that meant probably um, that, the, that the case, you know, any possible investigation or prosecution of his taking of these documents was going to take massively longer, uh, like possibly multiple, multiple years, uh, meaning that would, you know, it certainly wouldn't be done before the midterm elections this fall in the United States and very possibly wouldn't even be done by the 2024 presidential election, which Trump is almost certainly going to at least try to participate in. Now, the fact that the Department of Justice has appealed this and is trying to get this special master dispensation taken away means that they're pretty serious. They're actually trying to get they're actually trying to bring this investigation forward, which might mean that they're trying to prosecute the former president, Donald Trump, for his seizure of these documents. And uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but uh, I think that that's completely 100% unprecedented. 
that the Department of Justice is like, no, 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 actually, we, 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 we got we to gotta like hurry it along. We, we, we want to make sure that we can bring this former president to trial for the crimes that he has committed. Additionally, uh, regarding these documents, uh, it's coming to light that probably more classified documents are in Trump or his family's possession. Uh, currently, the DOJ and the FBI believe uh, that Trump probably has more of these documents uh, hidden in other residences or offices or whatever uh, belonging to him personally or to the Trump Organization, the umbrella corporation that handles uh, all of his real estate holdings. They also think that it's probable that a lot of these documents are in the homes of his children uh, and of his, um, his, you know, his, his children's families. Uh, so this is Ivanka Trump, Donald Jr., etc. Uh, one of the reasons that they believe this is that the FBI's search of Mar-a-Lago found a lot of classified documents, but it also found a lot of, <laughs> a lot of empty folders that said classified on them as in folders that once contained classified documents, but uh, with no classified documents currently in them, uh, meaning that the documents were either destroyed or are missing. And they're probably not just missing, they're probably somewhere else. Um, whether they are still in the procession of the former president and his associates, or if he has given them to other people, we don't currently know. Um, that's just completely crazy. Um, and it's precisely what we should have expected Donald Trump to do uh, upon leaving office. Uh, additionally, we now know that the FBI's investigation to, uh, into, well, a lot of stuff that Trump has done, uh, not, just, um, not just the seizure of these documents, but also the planning of January 6th, has been escalating even further. Uh, they have been seizing the telephones of a lot of Trump allies. Uh, last week, for example, they took the phone of Mike Lindell, uh, who is the MyPillow CEO, it's just ridiculous that this person is still in the zeitgeist, still a part of the conversation about Donald Trump. Uh, he was a sort of like late ally for Trump when all the rats were escaping the sinking ship um, in the wake of Trump's loss in the 2020 election. Uh, Mike Lindell was apparently in a Hardee's, like the, like the fast food chain, uh, when FBI agents uh, arrived and took his telephone uh, because they think that it might contain evidence of crimes that he and other Trump allies committed uh, on and around Trump's loss in this election. Uh, there have been a lot of these in recent weeks, the FBI showing up and seizing phones of people. Uh, so what those are going to show, we're just going to have to wait to see how that investigation plays out. Finally, I'm going to close out this week, uh, like I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. Uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, Stefano Della Chiaie. Uh, Della Chiaie was an Italian neo-fascist terrorist, and he was deeply involved in the international world of the right wing uh, in the post-war era, uh, right after World War II. Uh, Della Chiaia was born, actually born this week in history also, uh, September 13th, 1936, in an extremely fascist region of, of Italy. Um, this region remained deeply fascist and, you know, a hotbed of radical right wing organizing after World War II. Uh, Della Chiaia joined the MSI. Uh, the Italian Socialist Movement, uh, which is a neo-fascist Italian party that was founded after World War II by a bunch of fascist party loyalists. Uh, in this sense, uh, this makes them a neo-fascist party, but they're not a neo-Nazi party, right? Because uh, they weren't Nazis. They, they were Italian fascists. Um, 
He joined a more militant faction of this organization, uh, essentially people who wanted to do some street fighting and some brawling and some terrorist activity, as opposed to trying to be a, an earnest political party, uh, as was what the MSI was about. He became disillusioned with this like party-based approach to fascist organizing and uh, founded a series of other groups um, and ended up the leader uh, for the longest time of his own group called the, uh, the National Vanguard. Uh, he led this group uh, starting in the late 1950s uh, for several decades. The National Vanguard played an important role in countering the rise of the Italian left post-war, uh, partly with the help of the United States and other Western countries. Um, Della Chiaie and the National Vanguard um, had frequent run-ins with the Italian law, with the Italian army. Uh, they were a right-wing terrorist street-fighting organization. Uh, they bombed the offices of opposition parties, they also bombed, like, you know, just train stations with, with people in them. Um, unlike previous fascist organizations that had intellectuals and, you know, manifestos and also differentiating them from a lot of right-wing organizations today, uh, they were a, you know, like um, a propaganda of the act type group, uh, which means that rather than being like, oh, you know, here's a, here's a pamphlet with all of our politics in it, you know, their politics consisted of their violence, uh, their politics consisted of their ability to make people afraid uh, and to promote um, a feeling of uncertainty uh, that would prevent people from voting for the left. And unfortunately, this succeeded. Uh, the Italian left uh, was really stymied by this campaign. Uh, Del Chiaie eventually needed to uh, leave Italy because of his involvement in something called the uh, Borghese Golpi, uh, the Borghese coup, uh, which was a plan by another neo-fascist leader, uh, Junior Valero Borghesi, uh, to stage a coup in 1960, or excuse me, 1970. Uh, they actually had to call this off uh, after being found out by the Italian press, uh, and they eventually fled to Spain uh, and then spent a lot of time in the rest of the world. Uh, they had already, well, um, Delecciai specifically, uh, had already worked with a lot of international fascist organizations um, from Portugal to Greece in the late 1960s, uh, where he met with uh, the Greek military that had staged their own coup. And so that was his prep for attempting to stage this coup in Italy. Uh, but it didn't, uh, you know, it, it wasn't useless. Um, he then took his knowledge uh, from these uh, successful Greek golpistas um, and his attempt at staging this coup, or at least the plan to stage the coup in Italy, uh, to become a major player on the international right uh, throughout the world, uh, primarily Latin America. Uh, he was essentially a consultant uh, to a number of right-wing organizations and activities uh, and militias and bombings, um, from France to Peru uh, to Bolivia. Uh, he worked with uh, the Chilean military during Operation Condor, which was their anti-left push. Um, he worked with the Argentine Anti-Communist Alliance, which was a right-wing paramilitary organization during Argentina's Dirty War. He worked with Klaus Barbie uh, to stage a coup in Bolivia. Uh, and he did this all throughout the 1980s. Uh, he's, he's just sort of like everywhere in a lot of these stories. And unfortunately, uh, he totally got away with it. Uh, he was not prosecuted almost anywhere uh, in Latin America because he was working with governments that won, uh, you know. He was eventually extradited to Italy uh, in 1987 uh, on charges related to a, a train station bombing that his organization had participated in. Uh, but he was acquitted in the 1990s because uh, the government was incapable of providing enough evidence uh, to, um, to really actually fully prosecute him. 
partly because the police and the security forces kind of liked the fascists, uh, and also because um, of intimidation on the part of the fascists. Uh, so he remained influential on the Italian right. Uh, he was important to the history of the Lega Nord, uh, which is one of the most important right-wing parties in Italy today, and uh, died successful this week in history of old age on the 10th of September, uh, 2019. So Stefano della Chiaia, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really liked it, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. You can find me on Gmail at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. And I'm also on Twitter at fascism15. All right. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you next week. Thank <laughs> you.